Hello and welcome to episode two of Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. And I am Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy at the IISS. Today, we warmly welcome Professor Jimbo Ken to Japan Memo to unpack this. Year's Japan's defense white paper and to discuss defense and security challenges Japan faces today. Jimbo Sensei is a professor at Keio University's Faculty of Policy Management, where he focuses his research on international security, Japanese foreign defense policy, US Japan relations, and multilateral security in the Asia Pacific region. He has served as an advisor in various Japanese governmental commissions and research groups. Most recently, as a special advisor to the Minister of Defense in 2020 and senior advisor to the National Security Secretariat between 2018 and 2020, which is the administrative body of Japan's National Security Council. He also hosts several think tank positions. Since this year, he is serving as the executive director of the Japan US Military Statesman Forum at the Asia Pacific Initiative, where I am also affiliated as the Matsumoto Samata Fellow. He also serves as senior research fellow at the Canon Institute for Global Studies since 2009 and has been with the Tokyo Foundation since 2008. Previously, he taught at universities across Southeast Asia. Including Tamasat University in Thailand, Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, and National Taiwan University and National Chenchu University in Taiwan. He has been regular attendee of the IISS Shangri La Dialogue since 2011. So, welcome, Jimbo Sensei, and we are delighted to have you today. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. Jimbo Sensei, let's turn first to this year's defense white paper published by Japan's Ministry of Defense in mid July. Before we get to the contents, I think we need to spend a minute on the white paper's cover, which is usually such a sober document, created quite a stir in the foreign press、uh, and on social media globally. For those of our listeners who haven't seen it yet,、uh, the defense white paper for this year featured an ink drawing of a samurai warrior on a rearing horse, quite high energy, quite vivid、uh, picture, and, and a huge contrast. With the 2020 white paper, which was done in a rather more soothing pink hue and featured some flowers and Mount Fuji. So, Jimbo Sensei, when you first saw it, this cover, what went through your mind? The design of the front page of the white paper was a quite special one、uh, this year. And as you mentioned, that it uses the Japanese traditional black and white painting displaying samurai warrior riding on the horseback. Uh, which attracted the attention of the many readers, domestic and abroad. And what I heard as a context、uh, was the, the new editing team inside the Ministry of Defense was comprised of the young generation, and the more than half of staffers were female, which was、uh, great news. And they proposed to make the report stylish. To attract the attention of the wider audiences, especially the younger generation in Japan. And I also heard that the adoption of the design of the samurai、uh, was intending to address the resolve of Japan to defend itself. Do you have any ideas who they're going to put on the cover for 2022? This year's reputation、uh, for the front page was widely positive. And I think that the team led by those younger generations continues to stay. 
And I think there will be another attraction, what will be the design for the next year. And that will also be a great kind of opportunity for the annual report to get the attraction of the readers. Yeah, I think they've set the bar very high. So we're all expecting something special for for next year. In terms of the content, the Defence White Paper featured several uh, firsts, uh, including the first time this year that the Ministry of Defence had uh, stressed the importance of stability in Taiwan for Japanese security in a defence white paper. Also the first time that climate change had been recognised as a security issue, and also the first time that a chapter had been dedicated to the to US-China relations. In your view, what do these firsts mean? How important are they really? And what for you personally stood out uh, in, in this year's white paper? Since the white paper itself uh, is the annual report of the MOD, so it doesn't represent the document for the new policy guidance or the doctrine uh, from itself. So it is different from what you can find from the, for example, UK Defense Review or the Australia's Defense White Paper, which we need to read very carefully. Those works uh, need to be done at the higher level called the National Defense Program Guideline uh, for the case of Japan. And that is scheduled to be reviewed within next two years. So that's going to be the big one. But with these backdrops, one of the highlights of this year's white paper, as you mentioned, uh, was to identify the U.S.-China strategic competition as the main punchline uh, of the security assessment uh, of Tokyo. Under this context, uh, for the first time, the paper mentioned that situation surrounding Taiwan uh, is the important for Japan's security. So there has been the recognition of the direct uh, connection between Japan's defense and also the situation in Taiwan. So if one finds the Tokyo's long-standing so-called uh, reluctance on mentioning Taiwan directly as an objective of our defense policy, now I think we can say that we are more vocal uh, to directly mention it. And who do you think um, took, took the leading hand in creating this white paper? Because it is the, the, the messaging and the, the way it's set out is, is quite different sort of editorially. Who, who do you think was the sort of driving force here? This uh, has been reflecting the events of the development, what Prime Minister and also the Ministry of Defense have been working on uh, these subjects. In Washington, D.C., the Biden administration took the office and we had the first uh, Suga Biden summit in April. And prior to that, we had a two plus two defense and foreign minister, uh, ministerial level of meeting. Throughout those meetings, we have identified uh, the importance of the rise of China. And also in that context, heightened uh, attention has been paid on the Taiwan Strait situations. And uh, with a new focusing on the Biden administration's specific approach on the climate change, carbon neutral issues, uh, those have been coordinated quite well as the, you know, ministerial and also the summit level. So I think that the report uh, itself reflect upon the developments of the six months uh, under the Biden administration and its relation with, uh, with Tokyo. Let us go deeper into some of the key defense questions. This year's white paper also stepped up tones of rapid development and technological advancements of missile threats posed by both China and North Korea. So what are the most concerning and pressing threats that Japan is facing today uh, that do you think in the realms of missile defense? As the capability of the missiles of both North Korea and China is fast growing, you can find not only in terms of those numbers that is growing, but also the variety of types of the missiles 
that involve cruise missiles, precision guidance missiles, and, and also the hypersonics. So those growing capabilities certainly challenges uh, the existing missile defense posture of Japan, which need additional requirements and additional investments. What kind of new capability that will be needed to uh, counter those uh, threats? I don't know how many listeners uh, recognize uh, our decision to cancel uh, the Aegis Ashore ground-based missile defense system last year. And that was due to the MOD's mishandling of the communication, so to say, uh, with the locals uh, at the place of uh, deployment. So we have to de- withdraw the plan. But in December last year, the MOD came up with a new plan to replace the ground-based system to an alternative sea-based uh, Aegis system. And I personally hope that those new systems involve the component of integrated anti-air system uh, that can deal not only with uh, you know traditional ballistic missiles, but also the cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles uh, of the uh, adversaries. And I would like to add one more thing. Um, another highlight of Japan's debate was whether Tokyo would introduce the indigenous counter-strike capabilities in dealing with those emerging threats. Prime Minister uh, Abe was quite leaning forward, and he urged the debate before he left the office last year. And But under the new Prime Minister Suga, uh, the decision for this specific uh, subject uh, has been postponed. So while I don't find much eagerness in Tokyo for introducing the strike capability for countering ballistic missiles, but instead, MOD has been keen in procuring long-range strike capability, and we call it a standoff defense capability, and that is uh, more likely to focus conventional capability of China, especially in the Western Pacific realm. Strike capability debate has evolved uh, in a different context uh, over past uh, 12 months. I think you mentioned various responses from the Japanese government, and you also mentioned the new threats around hypersonic missiles. I know that Japan's MOD's um, Acquisition Technology and Logistic Agency is also developing hypersonic cruise missiles and, and glide vehicles. But do you think these are going to be um, important counterstrike capabilities that Japan should pursue in the future? There is a timeline issues and the budget uh, allocations, and obviously that Japan is investing upon the research and development on those uh, new capabilities that involves autonomous vehicles and also the integrated uh, C4I uh, systems that also involves those uh, precision-guided missile uh, and so on. We are trying to develop those capability as an alternative uh, for customization of our defense uh, in, in the various scenarios. The technologies uh, developed by the United States, the timeline will come much earlier than the readiness of the capability itself. So I think that there will be careful choices. Decisions should be made uh, according to those uh, timeline, and that all involves uh, on the technological availabilities uh, by uh, you know industries of both countries. This year's white paper also continued to highlight threats in the new domains, such as space, cyberspace, and electromagnetic domains. It's been more than two and a half years since Japan adopted the National Defense Program guidelines in the medium-term defense program uh, for fiscal year 2019 and beyond. So how has Tokyo's investment in these new domains, do you think these have been sufficient to meet the challenges? The building of the multi-domain context of the defense force has been 
the leading concept of the self-defense force since 2018 guideline. Whether you ask that Japan has been sufficiently investing on those uh, new domains, I don't want to rush to congratulate uh, what has been uh, happening. And I think the major investment still needs to be done. All domains, uh, including space, cyberspace, and also the electromagnetic uh, domains. The Air Self-Defense Force has established the so-called Space Operations Squadron in last May. It is a modestly small-scale unit, but it began to, to develop the operations uh, in the space situation awareness, we call it SAA, and that is to monitor and avoid risks uh, in the outer space. So that operational level is still modest. It will be the very important counterpart for those uh, U.S. capability. And so that, that is very important, I guess. Japan Self-Defense Force is also expanding its uh, own cyber capability, and they are aiming to double and triple the size uh, of the cyber staffs uh, from current several hundreds to something like a thousand by next two or three years. Tension has been well paid on this domain as well. And finally, on the electromagnetic domain, uh, it is critically important component of the cross-domain operation of the SDF. So combining of the securing our own system vis-a-vis -vis more like neutralizing adversities um, electromagnetic capability of Embo's uh, pursuit. Those new domains have been well recognized, and uh, we are now uh, in the phase of the increasing of those investment to those areas. I see that a lot of the goals that was set out in 2018 has been, especially around cyber, been accelerating. I think that the pace of investment has been accelerating, but there are some remaining challenges in the sphere. Let me now move on to the more kind of broader question of how the U.S. and Japan jointly respond to some of these issues. So you mentioned the statements and words that was included in the in the defense white paper and the summit joint statements about Taiwan. I wanted to kind of dig further in, in that and more recently. Uh, some Japanese high-level officials, such as the Vice Prime Minister Aso and Defense Minister Kishi, has been quite outspoken about the need for Japan to consider a role in a potential contingency, at least in the rhetorical level. So what roles do you think Japan should play in such a scenario? Taiwan has been capturing the attention with the Suga-Biden summit in April, deliberately touch upon peace and stability of Taiwan Strait in their joint statement. So there has been more alarming assessments on the Chinese PLA's capability uh, to um, seize and occupy Taiwan by force uh, when, when you try to uh, focus on the developments of the Chinese uh, actual capability developments. As you mentioned, that once large-scale um, Taiwan contingency breaks out, what will be the Japanese response? If you try to look at the map of the southwestern island chain uh, of Japan, Okinawa, Yonakuni, and those, and, and look at Taiwan, and as Japan's southwestern border is only 100 kilometers away from Taiwan, so whenever that large-scale contingency happens, uh, there will be no choice for Japan but to engage proactively uh, in the uh, contingency. So when China, you know, conducts a major operation towards Taiwan, uh, obviously that uh, it starts with, uh, you know, Japan's own defense of the remote islands. We have to deploy, uh, you know, significant size of the forces uh, to the southwestern islands. 
And secondly, we also have to secure uh, the major U.S. bases uh, in Okinawa and also uh, in the mainlands that are also under the targets of the uh, Chinese uh, ballistic and cruise missiles. And also, uh, we are required to engage uh, in the joint operation with the United States uh, forces uh, should they uh, decide to intervene. So that I think that whenever such a um, scenario could uh, take place, we really need to prepare uh, for the joint operation together uh, with the United States. And you can ask whether we are ready for this. And I think that we have upgraded uh, our uh, exercises and the scope of the joint operations uh, with the United States over past years. But the current defense cooperation guideline uh, with the United States mainly focus on the small and medium scale contingency, uh, which we used to call the gray zone uh, challenges uh, in the East China Sea. But the Taiwan situation is more like a high-end scenario, which consists of the high-end escalatory uh, management uh, operations. So that I think there should need a more like a visible package uh, for Japanese self-defense force to adopt to uh, you know, escalation management uh, operation together with the United States that also requires Japan to uh, invest more uh, adapting to this scenario. Uh, Jimbo Sensei, I think you listened to the IISS Fullerton lecture this week, which was delivered by U.S. Secretary of Defense Austin, who who talked about the U.S.'s relations with, with Southeast Asia. Uh, how do you see Japan's um, security relationships with, the, with with countries in Southeast Asia? That's a great question. And I think we have been expanding our portfolio of the security engagement uh, with uh, countries other than the United States. uh, And that also begin with like-minded states like uh, uh, Australia, uh, India, uh, and also that expands to uh, the mainly the coastal states uh, of uh, ASEAN uh, as well. And I think we begin our uh, serious commitments uh, to uh, those coastal states of ASEAN because primary reason is to secure the maritime domain. Uh, And I think sea lanes of communication is all connected uh, between East China Sea and South China Sea, so that the stability of the South China Sea is a quite pivotal uh, issue uh, for Japan's to manage. Uh, the East China Sea uh, as well. So one of the security commitment, uh, the purpose that we have uh, is to help the, the build, help to build the capacity of uh, the maritime uh, capability of the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, and other uh, states uh, in order to exercise their uh, law enforcement capabilities uh, in the maritime uh, domain. And together with a seamless kind of escalation management capability together uh, with uh, uh, the, their, their militaries. And also, um, Uh, Some of those Southeast Asian states have uh, uh, close uh, security uh, ties with the United States. 
Philippines and Thailand uh, have been uh, one of the major pillars of the security engagement for the United States uh, in the region. And just today, uh, the you know on the day of recording uh, of this episode, uh, Secretly Austin uh, has visited Manila uh, to revisit uh, their commitment, uh, including their visiting force agreement uh, with the Philippines. And I think that those kind of connectivity has been very important uh, for Japan to engage in Philippines, because Japan is the not actor to replace the role of the United States. But together with the United States, with a sound commitment uh, to the uh, security guarantee of the Philippines, uh, Japan can actually have a force multiplier effects uh, to deal with the Philippines uh, in dealing with uh, uh, you know, security capability building, especially uh, on the maritime fronts. So we talked about U.S.-Japan defense cooperation around Taiwan Straits in the region as well. But the alliance is also not just about defense cooperation. And a lot of people actually forget that Article 2 of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty actually states that the two countries will seek to eliminate conflict in their international economic policies and will encourage economic collaboration between them. So in the April summit, the two leaders also agreed on a partnership to cooperate on sensitive supply chains, including semiconductors, and on promotion and and protection of critical technologies. And this year's defense paper also highlighted these economic security challenges. So how aligned do you think are the United States and Japan on these issues? And what might be some headwinds for the two countries to cooperate on these issues? That's a great question, too. And uh, I, I think... As you mentioned, that the economic security has become the focal point of alliance coordination as Biden administration rapidly advanced um, its own uh, economic security policy that involves uh, the supply chain reviews, uh, mainly on uh, critical technologies. So during the Suga Biden summit, uh, both sides agreed to promote so called the core partnership, and that stands for the Competitiveness and the Resilience Corporation. And these include the United States and Japan jointly advanced, uh, for example, 5G, 6G uh, networks uh, for the future, uh, and also the global digital connectivity, and also cooperation on the sensitive supply chains, uh, starting from the semiconductors. And I think that those sectors will even develop further uh, uh, by uh, the end of this year when the Biden administration developed the additional six areas of the supply uh, chain review. And definitely that uh, Biden uh, will try to avoid the over-reliance to the uh, Chinese market uh, and and also the corporation uh, when they try to manage uh, the supply chain on the critical fields. And basically that kind of perception uh, needs to be shared by like-minded states, uh, the country like uh, Japan, Taiwan, uh, Australia, and India, and to manage, uh, you know, to emerge uh, the new sets of so-called the clean networks of the blue dot networks uh, that can really share uh, the standards of the security levels and also uh, the uh, the share of those uh, you know the technology uh, which which can really maintain the safety standards uh, and so on and you also mentioned about what what would be the you know potential concern of Tokyo Japanese uh, business community uh, have been fully interdependent uh, with uh, uh, Chinese market and uh, 
uh, the regional supply chain uh, that involves China. Uh, since 1980s, that the Japanese, especially the manufacturing sectors, has developed the wider uh, areas of the supply chains uh, that involve China and and also Southeast Asia. So it is a part of those, you know, the networks which are, uh, you know, deeply interdependent uh, with each other. So whenever that the Japanese firms have been asking to promote so-called China Plus initiatives, uh, and then incentivized by the Japanese government, you know, get out of the Chinese uh, market to reinvestment outside China, uh, there has been less incentivized because that the, what the China offers uh, as a potential of the growth uh, in the market still attracts the business rationalities of the many uh, Japanese uh, manufacturers and, uh, and and their services. So uh, I do have uh, a concern that the, whether such kind of partial decoupling uh, ideas, especially on the sensitive technology, uh, can be the idea fully shared uh, among the major uh, industries uh, in Japan. So that economic security is the sensitive issue, uh, which may diverge the interests between Washington uh, and Tokyo. But certainly this uh, has become the focal point uh, of the Japanese uh, government, which needs to be closely coordinated uh, with the United States. As we're sitting here in London, S H Q, not that far away from the uh, UK Ministry of Defence, and given that the, the carrier strike group led by HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth is now in the South China Sea, it'd be really interesting to hear um, how the UK's Indo-Pacific tilt is, is being received in Japan. Japan largely welcomes the UK version of the Indo-Pacific um, engagements. And I think we do have the basic concept, the more the better uh, approach, uh, recognition uh, for the UKs to uh, you know, come to this uh, region. And I think that uh, Indo-Pacific has created the platform of the gravity that everybody can uh, plug and play by using uh, this concept, and uh, which is uh, uh, quite a force multiplier uh, for uh, Japan and the United States uh, promoting uh, of this concept uh, as well. One of the significance that I found for the UK's engagement uh, in the region is that I, I think it may have the normative uh, uh, effects uh, as well as the making those critical issues to be internationalized. And this is a very important aspect when we look at uh, zero-sum issues like a territorial issues, maritime you know, uh, coercion issues, and also the issue of Taiwan. Uh, for example, China tried to characterize those issues as the domestic issues or the expansion of the domestic issues that can only be dealt with the concerned parties. But the country like a UK comes into the place and this is the international issues that involve the UK's interest and the European interest. That is a very important aspect uh, for us to manage uh, these issues uh, under the global standards. So that I think that the UK's um, uh, continuous commitment uh, to the Indo-Pacific and the regular sailing uh, of the Queen Elizabeth and the having a regular exercise uh, with the uh, with Japan, Australia, and the United States, have been uh, the great force multiplier for our defense planning. Finally, uh, to our two uh, Japan memo questions, 
I'll ask the first one, and that is, uh, do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? Uh, and you are, under the rules of this question, you are allowed to recommend your own books if, if you so choose. Sure. If I, I'm allowed, uh, I, I may be still promoting, uh, but I have recently written the article. It's not a book, uh, but it's entitled The Gradational Change of Balance of Power in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, which is the policy analysis of how the rise of China changed the dynamics uh, of the alliance management. And it can be downloaded uh, at uh, a think tank called the NCAFB based in New York. Uh, so uh, I wish many would be uh, interested in reading it. We shall be downloading instantly after this session is over, uh, Jimbo Sensei. So thank you for that recommendation. And a second Japan Memo question is, so what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Japan sometimes has been viewed as a country too close to the United States. And its strategic autonomy has been quite limited. So what Japan decides is part of the U.S. Uh, interest. There has been a stereotype that the Japan doesn't really have the independence of the decision-making, especially in the foreign relations. Um, but in fact, uh, once you closely observe what Tokyo has been trying to perceive, uh, uh, pursue, um, you will find our own initiatives uh, in many areas. Um, for example, on the economic domain, you find TPP uh, that is without the United States and the RCEP that involves China. And our own economic relation with China, as I mentioned, uh, need to be taken into your consideration how Japan has been uniquely associated uh, with those um, uh, interests. And also on the security domain, um, Japan's expanding partnership with the, with the states in the region, as I mentioned, uh, uh, that involves Southeast Asia, uh, should also be highlighted. And it also evolves as the unique dynamics uh, in, in this region. And I think Japan perceives, um, obviously, that uh, the main story of the balance of power, uh, the change of the balance of power, is obviously the rise of China. In, in Asia, it is not only China that is rising, but also all the other emerging economies that it, that includes uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, uh, India are all on the rise. And Japan uh, wished to take advantage of such a dynamics of the change uh, in Asia to have a better portfolio of our economic policy and also the security policy. So that this is something that uh, I think I would like to stress uh, listeners that the Japan is also developing its own way of uh, making our own portfolio for uh, its uh, foreign relations. I think I share with you on that point as well, especially around digital issues as well. A lot of people often think that U.S. is leading on key issues. But for instance, the core concept of data free flow and trust, um, which is becoming a core concept for data rules making, is also um, proposed by Prime Minister Abe or alternative technologies like the Open RAN for 5G. Uh, which was agreed in this summit statement, was also um, pushed by, by Japan. 
So thank you very much, Jimbo Sensei, for the very rich insights and fascinating discussion. I think we could have continued this conversation for many more hours. And thank you very much for listening to episode two of the Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you have not listened to our first episode, we talked with Bill Emmett, who helped us understand Japan's socioeconomic concerns and priorities. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at the past research by the Japan Chair Program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active, sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us on at Robert Allen Ward, at Yuka Koshino, and at Kenj0126 for Jimbo Sensei. Thanks again, and see you next time. 